Kia ora. welcome to episode 72 of the SWZ podcast, the podcast for New Zealand Star Wars fans. My name is Matt. And my name is Christy. Now, it wasn't long ago that we were recording episode 71. This is a special insert episode of the SWZ podcast. We needed to split this week's podcasting into two episodes because of the volume of material we have got to get through. The main thing we're going to be focusing on today is a bit of a recap of episode one and episode two of the Obi-Wan Kenobi series, which is available on Disney Plus right now. So hopefully you've all had an opportunity to see that. They screened last week on Friday afternoon New Zealand time. They will be scheduled on Wednesdays moving forward. So we're looking forward to seeing that very, very soon this week. Yeah, it's just interesting. We've never really had a Star Wars celebration convention that's dropped at the same time as sort of new content. In the past, when they were lined up with the theatrical releases, they were about a good month, month and a half before that. So you're still in sort of like trailer territory. You weren't sort of, you know, running off to go watch things straight away. And then, of course, we had the interim years where there were just like, you know, an animated show or, or season to look forward to later that year. This was like a huge bombardment of Star Wars content with all of the news and sort of reveals at Celebration and then of course two episodes nearly an hour and a half of Obi-Wan Kenobi series uh, at the same time so yeah having to split it up into into two episodes this week. All right so we'll get onto those episodes very very shortly but there's just a couple of points I want to jump in on before we get to that because we spent a lot of the last podcast talking about upcoming Star Wars Disney Plus and movie theatrical releases and there's been just a couple of additional bits of information that have come out that we'll just throw into the mix to finish up that sort of content. First up is a brief bit from Vanity Fair about the upcoming series The Acolyte. We don't have a firm date for this but Vanity Fair interviewed showrunner Leslie Headland and there's just a couple of interesting bits in here that we would like to talk about. The Acolyte is still on the distant horizon with no release date specified, but here's what Hedlund had to say about her plans for it. Vanity Fair asks, how do you explain the High Republic to a Star Wars fan who may not yet be familiar with the stories the books have been telling? This is asked, of course, because the Acolyte, we presume, is focusing on Sith or more than one Sith characters, but it is being set in the High Republic era. Hedlund replies, The way I would explain the High Republic and specifically where my show takes place is that I'm about 100 years before The Phantom Menace. So a lot of those characters haven't even been born yet. My question in watching The Phantom Menace was always like, well, how did things get to this point? Do you know what I mean? How did we get to where a Sith Lord can infiltrate the Senate and none of the Jedi pick up on that? What went wrong? What are the scenarios that led up to this moment? That's what I would say. That's how I would describe it to my friends, especially my non-Star Wars friends. I think that's a very interesting setup for the show. Yeah, I think it would be perhaps a little bit of a misstep to rely too much on people being familiar with the High Republic, jumping into the sort of era. Yes, Star Wars fans will be aware of some of the characters and the story arcs, even if you've only read one or a few of the books, a couple of the comics and things like that, or just generally, you know, just being familiar with some of the sort of the reviews and things of the products out there already. So it's interesting to be able to sort of spill it like that. And yeah, I do find that intriguing. We've talked about Mm, this in the past. So it's, it's, it's more than just a story in the High Republic. It is definitely a bridge even though there's going to be a further tie yet, but it's definitely bridging into, like she says, how we got to the situation of the Phantom Menace. 
Yeah, because there's that line between Mace Windu and Yoda talking about the shroud of the dark side has fallen and sort of, you know, the, the, the effect of the dark side has diminished their ability to see things and sort of predict things. And, and that is really interesting. Yeah, that they were literally standing next to, to him and not sort of sensing the dark side. Mm-hmm. You know, we get a sense in, in many of the movies that they, that, that the Jedi and force sensitive beings can sense things from across the galaxy, you know, people dying and, and decisions and things like that you know like Yoda knows something's going on Mm. with Anakin and stuff like that but obviously when when they want to dark side aligned people can sort of shroud themselves and hide in it so that's sort of interesting you know how much was really going on underneath that the Jedi uh, Council wasn't aware of was it sort of strategized and Mm. intentional and, and how did they achieve that yeah, I know some people are wondering whether Darth Plagueis might ever sort of show up because he's sort of earlier in the timeline. That would be intriguing, particularly if he's not sort of a human, you know, any of the alien species. There's a few of the Star Wars alien species that are given a specific time sort of lifespan, yeah. like Wookiees and Yoda species and things like that. Well, we know they exceed human sort of life expectancy, so it'd be really interesting to see if we play with some characters. And obviously, we know that Yoda is alive in this time period, mm-hmm. but we wouldn't know about any of the other Jedi Council members. It's going to be really interesting to see do is it going to be completely from sort of an acolyte perspective, from the dark side perspective, and we don't get sort of Jedi Council scenes, or are they even going to sort of pull that in to make they, it feel yeah. very familiar to fans it's, it's, and and have them like, oh, we don't really, it's there's something happening, but we don't slate, really know. But they've got mm. a reference to Council at some point. Yeah. I think it would be really interesting to see the Council chamber that we're yeah, familiar with that now would be with neat. a different set of characters. Yeah. The other title we want to talk about, because it uh, didn't really crop up during the timeline of Celebration, and there's a specific reason for that, is the Lando series. We know this is a live-action series. Earlier on, it was mysterious as to whether it would be live-action or animated, whether it would involve established actors. We did get a hint a few months back when Donald Glover was being interviewed by Jimmy Kimmel, and Jimmy sort of prompted him along the lines of, we understand you've got a Lando series in the works, and... Donald dodged it by saying something along the lines of, um, yeah, um, now you're telling everybody about all my work. But Kathleen Kennedy has been speaking to a few people and an interview she specifically had with Cinema Blend on this topic when she was asked about the Lando series, she pretty much confirmed that it is going to be Donald Glover's show. Uh, We don't have a set timeline for that. And the reason for this is because of how busy Donald Glover is at this point in time. So Kathleen said in response to the question about when we might see the Lando series, you will need to ask Donald. He's the one that holds all the cards here. But there's no movement. I'll say that honestly. It's not for lack of trying. It's just that he's a very busy guy. He's got another series and I think one other thing and then he'll come our way. We are patiently waiting. Uh, So that's not a negative thing. I think that is just a timing thing. We've got no shortage of material to keep us busy and interested until that comes along. But I do like the fact that we've got this very official confirmation that it will be Donald Glover playing Lando Calrissian again in the Lando series. Yeah, the fact that both on Kathleen's side and Donald's side in different interviews, they're both talking about it. It makes it sound like somebody signed on the dotted line that they've kind of committed to it. But I know in terms of these sorts of things, there's commitments, there's scheduling and stuff like that. If he's being asked about it and 
And obviously, Jimmy Kimmel, is he works for ABC, owned by Disney. They generally mention these things because they're just trying to sort of get a bit of a buzz, get remind people that these things are in the pipeline. And yeah, it just seems like Lucasfilm is very, very keen. They're just waiting for the stars to align, as it were, and have them. I know that they come across things like that with the like of Taika Waititi, you know, these hot properties, these people that everyone wants to work with. It's just kind of like, you know, you, you're standing for your spot in the queue. And finally, you know, when they've finished what they're working on, they can come to you and and get going. So it's exciting. I know um, Young Lando was a really fun element of Solo. I mean, I like all of Solo. I thought it was a fantastic film, but I'm looking forward to this. It's not at the top of my sort of hype list. I'm I probably rank the Acolyte as higher than Lando, but that's because we don't really have a scope for it. It could be all sorts of, you know, it was sort of like we could have adventures all across the galaxy. He's not tied down to Cloud City when he's young, so he could be anywhere. I mean, I love him as a character. I love Donald Glover as a performer. The thing about it, in my mind's eye, is I don't see him as an action hero, so it'll be quite a a different storytelling. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'd be really interested to see how they leverage that. Yeah. But yeah, it's intriguing. Good to know. Just a little bit of an update. I think I'm always like a little bit disappointed when there's like official events like celebration and there are titles that they've announced, but they don't kind of give a, here's a state of what everything's going. Like, okay, this one's on hold. This one's like, just run through a list. This one's in like pre-production. This one's in development. This one's in the casting phase. Just so we know what's being worked on. We'll just go, you know, this one's on hold while we, you know, it's been rescheduled for later in the, you know, schedule, whatever sort of, you know, um, in like industry speak for basically it's on hold and we don't know what to do with it. You know, just give us like a little, bit of a reshuffled update yeah yeah well I, I think they didn't overtly say all that at celebration specifically because they wanted to focus on the positive focus on what was coming out but i think building up to celebration and this has come through through other media outlets as well they have been working to solidify the release schedule and this is just one this is the state of play with the lando series and uh, it's as solid as we're going to get it but it is it is better than nothing it makes me wonder with the likes of Grandma Rodeo now announced as Skeleton Crew, just how many kind of feelers and writers they have. It's sort of a pool of like, okay, we like you guys' work. Just give us give us a yell if you come up with something interesting and we'll have like a big pile of scripts and story treatments and just sort of ideas. Wow, and then they're just sort of like, okay, if something slides to the side a little bit and gets shelves because it's scheduling or somebody kind of drops up, more, then yeah. something else they go, oh, you know, that was a really interesting idea. Let's pull that person and see if we can develop that faster. Because I feel like Skeleton Crew was it kind of it almost felt like out of nowhere you know it wasn't in that big lineup where we had the 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 droid story that and then the tales of the jedi as well that one wasn't in that big initial list when lando was announced but sounds like tales of the jedi and skeleton crew are much further along in production yeah they definitely are and uh, and the way tales of the jedi came about ideas spawned by but Dave Filoni that they just thought were a really good idea and they could fit in using the existing production you know, workflow. I, I'm getting the feeling that both for animated and even live action, that the production workflows are becoming so much more streamlined in terms of assets and and facilities, technology, and and people that they can pull these things off the ground a lot lot faster than they conceivably could in the past. 
It almost makes me wonder if it's actually a smoother workflow, if they literally have productions back to back to back, whether you have it in animation or that. So you get sort of like a consistent workflow. You don't need to like, like on film crews and things like that. They have to go and hire out people and, oh no, there's a big movie production that's taking all like the assistant directors and the on-set people and bits and pieces. And then if you've got an in-house team, then you can basically have them on salary, you know, come in Monday to Friday, let's make Star Wars TV shows, you know, and it's a guaranteed gig. So you've got these people always always making props it's a day-to-day job you know you don't lose people to other productions if it's consistent and same with like the animation they've kind of refined down on the animation style so you're not having to sort of start from the ground up and go okay let's sit down and sketch what you know star wars characters would look like in this style they're like yeah well, no, the clone from wars the, is kind from of existing libraries yeah. you're not starting so, from the ground so you don't need time. to go and hire a bunch of artists they've already got a team of people that know how to draw in the clone wars style that have a whole lot of digital assets that they can just pull in and go you know x-wings and, and, and people who can craft things mm. within the software in a pretty quick turnaround so i think that's probably why we were able to get towers of the jedi and skeleton crew off the ground so rapidly Plus, I think there's a lot of benefit to having people that are on board for a long time in terms of just the lore and the world building. They become familiar with all the details that really show when you're sort of creating stories and characters in such the sort of rich galaxy. So you don't need to sort of come in and go, okay, read the big encyclopedia, then we'll get going. You know, these people know everything and they'll learn a lot more the longer they stay in Lucasfilm. And passionate people are going to create better content. Okay, we've got two episodes of Obi-Wan Kenobi to discuss because they were released back to back. The first one takes place on Tatooine and Alderaan exclusively, and the second one takes place on the planet Dayu. Really interesting to note from a Kiwi perspective that both episodes have good Kiwi representation amongst them, in some instances more than one. Uh, that's a fun aspect that we just like to you know, talk about here on SWNZ and on the SWNZ website in particular. But let's just uh, run through the basic plot and our thoughts and uh, our reception of Episode 1 and episode, t- episode 2 of Obi-Wan Kenobi. So Episode 1 opened with a very interesting montage of prequel trilogy scenes that were sort of tied together to establish in particular the relationship between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader, Anakin Skywalker. And I thought this was a really fun cut. And I get the message, get the impression that Disney Plus, Lucasfilm are in particular really quite leveraging this connection to the prequel trilogy in a way that hopefully makes more people want to go back and and enjoy and appreciate the prequel trilogy. Yeah, it was really good at just kind of summing up the prequels for the sort of the new generation of Star Wars fans that have either sort of jumping in to Star Wars on Disney Plus because of the hype around the Mandalorian and aren't as well sort of well versed with the sort of the main films, the films that have come out, you know, as we just celebrated the 20th anniversary of Attack of the Clones. These were 20 years ago that these sort of films came out. And also just a sort of a nostalgia hit for the people that have been here all this time. So it was interesting, you know, sort of reminding people that, yep, this is, you know, Obi-Wan's story. This is what you sort of need to know about his life so far. And just a quick sort of like sum up, okay, for those of us who are new here, this is who Obi-Wan is. He went through some sad stuff and now we're here. (laughs) So following on immediately from that, before we get to the main Obi-Wan Kenobi plot, there was a few scenes or a sequence of scenes set in the Jedi Temple. This was overlapping with the latter scenes of uh, Revenge of the Sith. So in particular, we see younglings training with a Jedi trainer, Jedi master, at the point in time when the 501st clone troopers are 
uh, ransacking the Jedi Temple. And I think part of the message from this was that uh, we, it was kind of conveying that there was some escapees, some Jedi and Jedi younglings and Jedi Padawans that managed to escape from the Temple and from the slaughter of the 501st. And that's an important notion for the, for the rest of the way that uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi unfolds. Yeah, for me, it was basically just an absolute gut punch right out of the gate. We know sort of the horrors that the Jedi, and in particular Obi-Wan, witnessed. He saw the hollow recordings of the youngling slaughter in the Jedi Temple, and he's the one that trained the one that did it. So it feels really sort of, that's an especially painful memory for him. So we're sort of reminding Star Wars fans of that sort of awful moments from episode three as a sort of a starting. And I was, I was, just sort of dumbstruck for a few seconds there going oh my gosh they're making us relive this this is this is painful you know right out of the gate because we're all sitting there as star wars fans super excited and the first thing they do is just like ha feels and sadness and like i was literally going are we gonna see more younglings die we never see like the little kids get slaughtered by anakin and we it's implied (laughs) we didn't get to see it and i'm sitting there going am i are they they about to make me watch this in the opening moments of star wars i I had that fear because i think they were just trying to re- reinforce the severity of the situation i did have that fear uh, but i but i think it was intentional that they escaped and i, I think that's a yes. key part of the, yes. plot, the plot development uh, a couple of interesting points though this is those were live action uh, clone troopers they weren't C- cg and we know that because one of the clone troopers was actually portrayed by a kiwi stunt person vanessa cater and uh, that's an interesting aspect because throughout the entire prequel trilogy all all versions of clones that we saw were basically computer generated wearing computer generated armor they were actors or fully computer generated pe- persons clones but even when they had, you know, Timur Morrison's face or everything below the neck was computer generated. There's no physical clone trooper armor created for the prequel trilogy. Yeah, possibly because they just wanted it to look sort of new and clean and fit in with sort of the digital style of the prequels. We know if you've ever been around stormtroopers, how loud the armor is knocking around. The clone trooper costume is very tight, very it's specific. Hard. Well, it's hard and to mass also, it's hard to get a whole lot of people that are the same exact body type. The clones are all supposed to be clones. So they're all going to be exactly the same height, exactly the same build proportions, hips, shoulders, you know, height and everything like that. And it's just a little bit easier. If you've got everyone in blue screen, you can kind of float their heads around and stick them on, you know, the identical uh, yeah. CG body. So, so this is an interesting bit of trivia if you're wondering if they were computer generated as they were in the prequels or not. No, they were in fact stunt performers representing all of those clone trippers. I think that's very cool. So then we break into the Obi-Wan Kenobi story proper set 10 years after those events. We start off with the Inquisitors, the Grand Inquisitor, the fifth brother, and the third sister, Reva, landing on the planet Tatooine because they have heard about a Jedi Wanderer who is hiding on Tatooine. They kind of, early on, I think we got the feeling that it might be someone else other than Obi-Wan Kenobi, and that is the way it panned out. But I thought the way the scene panned out on the whole was really, really interesting. It really gave us a strong feel for the Inquisitor, the Grand Inquisitor's approach to hunting Jedi and his... Sort of his character on the whole, as well as the tension and the infighting between some of the Inquisitors. Yeah, it's interesting. With all of the Star Wars movies that we've seen, have been under 
under the sort of established rule of two. We don't, there isn't infighting when there's two. That's kind of, you know, that's kind of why there is two. You know, one's, one's higher, one ranks mm. lower. Everyone knows their place, you know, and eventually the, that balance is upended and the cycle begins again, you know, when the master is killed or died. And then the next one. But this is the time where we're finally seeing in, in sort of live action what happens when you've got that kind of wrestling for a hierarchy and power within people that obviously know that they are under the emperor and stuff like that. But certainly there's, they, they made it very clear that there, there's definitely a hierarchy and certainly the name Grand Inquisitor and then the others that are always kind of numbered. But you can see that there is yeah, still a jostling amongst them, sort of like siblings. They are called brother and sister, you know, in terms of their titles. And certainly it does make me wonder whether they, whether the Grand Inquisitor gets some sort of like special attention, special, you know, a rank for sort of maybe perhaps receiving sort of I don't know, benefits or something to a certain extent from Palpatine direct. You know, I, I always, I like the sort of, we know Palpatine's in control. He obviously sees that there is some benefits to having, you know, dark side force users, not exactly Sith, yeah, but, yeah, you so know, like, utilizing wonder, force wonder, what sensitives. Is, what is the end game for the Inquisitors? They're hunting down the Jedi. Eventually there will be no more Jedi. What, what do they, what are they presuming they're going to get out of it in terms of power or, or rank or, or whatever? Yeah, you don't know if, like, if they are sort of promised some sort of reward, some sort of position, like a, like a retirement fund. You're going to get, you know, you know, riches and a, and a, and a nice place on Coruscant or something like that and join the, the upper ranks of the empire, you know, once the Jedi are all done and dusted mm-hmm. and, you know, secretly Palpatine whispering to himself, yeah, once the Jedi are gone, I'm just going to slaughter them all so they don't come for my throne. I enjoyed this opening scene. I found the Grand Inquisitor's delivery and his style quite sinister. I enjoyed the fact that he's sort of a, a patient villain. Mm. I think that's quite a fun concept. I found the fact that the Inquisitors, during, as, as a component of their infighting, are using force powers against yes. one another. That, that was that was a, a, a really interesting thing. And, of course, it turns out that the Jedi they're hunting is, in fact, Nari, they're hunting him on the basis of a story that they've heard, uh, played by Benny Safdie, and because of this infighting, he actually gets an opportunity to escape. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because, yeah, it, as you said, we don't know if it's Obi Wan. I was kind of scanning yeah. the, the the room to see see if you could see Obi Wan mm-hmm. sort of shot in the cloak because we hadn't seen him revealed. And I was kind of going through, and you, you know that as the audience, you're kind of like, okay, so Obi Wan is in the room, we don't recognize him, but which one is the Jedi? And you're waiting. And I think that the way that they revealed that by sort of you know threatening um, injury to somebody, you know, a Jedi just sort of compulsion to help is going to jump out. And sure enough, yeah, he does. Use the force to stop the blade from hitting sort of the, the poor cantina person so he has to flee right so there's the rest of the episode is basically alternating between ben on tatooine and all around with princess leia and her adopted parents the scenes focusing on ben i think they're they're really slow paced and i think they're really interesting in that regard they're showing him working in pretty mundane job cutting up a carcass of a large crashed bit flying beast and uh, just yeah clocking in and out and been been leading a pretty pretty minimal life and i think the slow pace and the repetitive the almost groundhog day aspect of the repetitiveness of his his life at that point is just really painting pretty clearly where he's at that he's totally accepted his fate he seems to have cut himself off fully from the force as we've heard of others doing in the star wars franchise of course 
um, to the extent he's hidden his lightsabers, he hasn't used or thought about them. Possibly as a consequence of this, even though he's been trying, he hasn't been able to communicate with Qui-Gon Jinn during the 10 years that he's been on there, as uh, Yoda instructed he might be able to do at the end of Revenge of the Sith. But yeah, that's that slow pacing, that repetitiveness, that's just really, really painting the picture of a person who's been beaten down and accepted his fate and just trying to lay as low as possible. There's often been in the past comparison between sort of the Jedi Order and monks, you know, in terms of like not having relationships and not really having much many possessions and things like that. And it kind of makes me think back to the sort of the notion of he's he's sort of paying penance for his sins. He's literally living in just a like a hole in the ground type sort of just a stone cave, you know, with very, very meager possessions. He's wearing just sort of drabs. They don't even, you know, Jedi robes are not glamorous, but he's wearing clothes that look even worse than his old Jedi robes you know very meager he's got you know not really too much to his life you know he's no, not he's not he allowing eats. himself enjoyment like the one thing that he seems to sort of take pleasure in is looking over Luke and just sort of like you know like he's just punishing himself for his perceived failures with Anakin yeah. you know and just sort of torturing himself by living this existence yeah. So just to, just to talk about the other things that happened directly to Obi-Wan Kenobi at this point, he has an interaction with the Jawa. He picks up a toy T-16 Skyhopper that we know Luke has later on in A New Hope that he's playing with. So that eventually that's going to do, or something similar to that is going to make his way to him. But as part of his looking over, looking over Luke, you get the impression, and this crops up later when he's talking to Owen Lars specifically, that he wants Luke to think bigger than Tatooine. Mm. And and this thought of skyhoppers and flight and space flight and so forth is part of that. Yeah, it sets the scene for the sort of hoping that uh, the like um, like Yoda seems to convey. You know that that Luke and Leia are sort of the only hope. So he's he's sort of guarding them, knowing that there is some sort of destiny for them. Whether that is sort of you know predestined in the force that 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 yoda and obi-wan are aware of so they're just like okay we're just gonna sit this one out and wait for these guys because we tried and we failed so it's gonna be on them and he's just kind of sitting there waiting going you know luke come on show your force powers so i can jump in and we'll get going we'll start training you one thing that really stood out to me and he does ask or owen at least says is that owen implies that he thinks that ben obi-wan needs to know if Luke is demonstrating any force powers yet. I get the impression that at that point, Obi-Wan Kenobi doesn't actually know how it's going to pan out, doesn't know whether it's going to be Luke or Leia or both or neither that actually manifest force Mm. powers. Yeah, yeah. So um, I really wish there was, like, I hope there's going to be like a novel or some sort of companion book that gives us a little bit more details. All the series might actually play out so that we know a little bit more. Like you said, does he know... If Luke is force sensitive at this point, you know, like there's obviously this tension between Obi-Wan and Owen. It, it seems to imply that Obi-Wan doesn't even know if Luke is force sensitive or not, you know, just wanting to sort of train him, you know, because we know that certainly in the prequel era, being force sensitive doesn't necessarily mean you'll have force sensitive kids and vice versa. You know, Shmi obviously has some sort of special 
Jedi-ness about her, but she doesn't seem to be a Jedi specifically, you know, yet she has Anakin, and then obviously we have many Jedi that are sort of, you know, taken to the to the Jedi Temple as as children, as infants, but their their family are not force sensitive and things like that. So it's not exactly, I guess, a given that that either Luke or Leia would be with the Force. I guess mm-hmm. it might just be hopefulness from the Jedi's part that perhaps you know perhaps Anakin's children will be the one to fulfill the prophecy. But it just it's a really interesting. At that point aspect. in time, it's a bit of a blank slate. I find mm-hmm. that I find that interesting certainly. So. Obi-Wan does try and give this gift um, surreptitiously to Luke Skywalker later when Obi-Wan has just come back from his job and he's tending tending to his EOP in the little stable there. Um, Owen confronts him and says, you know, we don't want this, we don't want you interacting with our family, uh, stay away. And that, that immediately precedes the appearance of the Inquisitors in the streets of Tatooine and... Reva seems to sense that Owen might might know something. So there's a really, really tense interaction between Reva and Owen. Uh, I, I thought this was really, this was a really interesting interaction and Joel Edgerton played it really solidly. He really let us know, he really conveyed how stoic Owen Lars is and whether or not that's partly to protect his family and or despite his dislike for Obi-Wan Kenobi to protect Obi-Wan, he really stands his ground in a, in a convincing and impressive way. Yeah, we're certainly familiar with the concept that there are people in the galaxy that have no love for the Jedi mm. because of what it's done to their life and their circumstances in particular. Not that... Not that Owen was, you know, personally attacked by Jedi, but he was he was aware of Anakin. He met him. You know, Anakin didn't kill Shmi, obviously rescued her, but that was a bit of turmoil that their family had to go through. We don't know particularly the circumstances of how Kleeglars would have passed away at this point because obviously it's Owen and Baru that are owning the homestead and living there and all that. But he's had a hard life and maybe feels like the Jedi just didn't exactly help matters and they failed. And I know that's a kind of the point well, in this- some of the earlier content. It was like, you know, what did the Jedi really do? We had a war, a lot of people died and the Jedi still they died, you know, and they all got sort of chased away and failed. If, they didn't protect the galaxy. Yeah. We fought the Clone Wars only to have the Empire, a worse thing to come out of it. You know, it's like, what did the Jedi do? They just they just drag sort of war and, you know, fallout with them wherever they go. And everyone in the in the in the city there is very seems very familiar with the concept of inquisitors mm-hmm. so they would know just how deadly it would be to be to even be suspected of having an association with a force user so you know he's he's putting his family first and doesn't want to doesn't want to risk his life Baru's or Luke's just because Obi-Wan's got guilt you know and sort of you know just hovering around there in the background he's not going to dob him in but he just doesn't want anything to do with them. Oh, and I guess yeah. he's worried that if Obi-Wan is sneaking to their house... He wants nothing to do with Obi-Wan Kenobi because it's just he doesn't, complicated. He doesn't want inquisitors or stormtroopers to basically be tracking Obi-Wan and think that they're like helping him or hiding him in some manner because that's instant death for them, as unfortunately we see later. Yeah, yeah. well, we do see later because when Obi-Wan is traveling back to his cave, he and Nari comes out of the, the rocks and discusses with him, or pleads with him to try and help him because he knows that he's being pursued. Nari knows that he's being pursued. Obi-Wan Kenobi refuses to help, says he's not. He's not Obi-Wan Kenobi. He's not a Jedi. You've got the wrong person and so forth. 
And again, this this really paints the picture of where he's at in terms of just denying his past, denying his history, and sticking to that incredibly steadfastly. But the consequence of him not helping Nari, and Obi-Wan Kenobi discovers this later, is that Nari is captured by the Inquisitors, killed and displayed hanging hanging in the streets of, of the Tatooine village. And that starts finally to strike a chord with Obi-Wan Kenobi. He realises the impact, perhaps, of of his refusal to help and the bigger picture that that sort of envelops. Yeah, it definitely set the tone for the fact that this is this is not for children, this series. This is for the people that have been with Star Wars from the beginning or saw the prequels and are old enough to watch, you know, some some fairly dark content. So that, that, that sequence on Tatum was actually broken into a couple of components and it alternated with the sequences that were taking place on Old Run. Each time we transitioned to Old Run, we got quite a distinct change in the tone of the theme music. I really like the Old Run theme music, by the way, uh, and, and just the overall visuals. So we meet Leia and her family. Leia's mother, adopted mother, is played by Kiwi actress Simone Kessel. That was a pleasant surprise. We, know, we knew Simone was involved in it. Her name had been announced as one of the cast members, but since that announcement, we haven't heard anything about what role she plays. So that's very, very exciting that a Kiwi is playing Princess Leia's adopted mother. And Jimmy Smith obviously returns as Bail Organa, Princess Leia's adopted father. Yeah, this was really fun. I loved seeing Bail Organa back, Jimmy Smits, of course, another connection to the prequel films. And that was really exciting as a sort of Star Wars The Old Republic fan. It's always really neat when planets that are sort of more fully explored in other media, like video games, still match up when they revisit them. We got a sort of a broad view of Alderaan at the very end of episode three. So it was really fun to sort of see it expanded on. We got more rooms. We got sort of, you know, sort of the woods outside and things like that and it matches very well with what we saw in episode three and in what we see in the video game star wars the old republic so tour and of course one of my favorite moments was finding out that it is a new zealand actress who gets to play leia's adoptive mother and like that is just that's really neat to me leia is such a special character and when i realized that i was going to be seeing young leia with her family that was a really neat moment i i was i was worried you know when you hear these casting announcements and then you don't hear anything else you're like well sometimes you know schedules don't align maybe they recast maybe that character was cut in sort of story development and they don't need them anymore but now I know why they hid that casting announcement because saying Brea or Ghana mm-hmm. or in any capacity uh, is going to give away a, a chunk of the plot and and sort of let people know it in the secret and I know that elements of this particular storyline around Leia were leaked on the internet but it was not in an official capacity and you really had to go digging and really be diving in there for all of the leaks and spoilers to have sort of known that. Yeah, so it's Vivian Laura Blair that is playing 10-year-old Princess Lara. I think she does a fantastic, fantastic job and really gives us, I can many, many times during this episode, I saw a direct connection between the way Leia was being portrayed and the, into who she grows up into, Carrie Fisher's version of Princess Leia and A New Hope, I saw a very strong connection between those portrayals. She's a very young actress. I mean, the the Skywalker twins are sort of depicted around the age of 10 in this um, series, but she she comes across as a really talented actress for her age. That kind of Drew Barrymore sort of vibes, you know, playing, playing the young girl in E.T. She doesn't, she's talking 
almost back to a lot of people, including her parents. She's kind of got cheeky, but she doesn't come across as bratty no, or a, a sort of that sort of really irritating show, young it's child. It's show where Leia is getting to. Yes. And, and, and when yeah. she ends up to in the original Because in she, the original she talks trilogy. back to the likes of Tarkin she and Vader. You know, she doesn't, she doesn't flinch. Yeah, crap, yeah. She, she talks back in a really confident way, but not in like a, in a really sort of, irritating way the, the you know people people have such a special place in their hearts for princess leia of course with carrie fisher having passed away you know that you've got to do that role justice and that's a big weight of responsibility to put on such a young actor and i think she does a really mm. good job i can't wait to see where where she goes in the story so as well as each of the individual portrayals of brea uh, Bale and Leia, which I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed their chemistry, their interaction. It gave us a really strong indication of their respective relationships, all three of them, in fact. Uh, the relationship between Leia and her, and, her step, and her adopted mother is not bratty, but there's, a, there's an understanding and a love there that persists despite the disobedience. She knows that it's not malicious disobedience, that it's just a, you know, it's just her very specific personality. The relationship between the understanding between the, the two parents, but also the very, very tight bond between Bale and Leia, which was fantastically portrayed and very touching. It comes across as that sort of loving relationship when the children are sort of very smart, intelligent and sort of witty for and their you know age. Where they're gonna get to, yeah, 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 yeah. She's she's not she's not a she's not sort of one of those sort of brat kids that is just talking back and being disobedient because they they don't like authority or anything like that. You know that she's she's playful. She has a passion and I thought it was interesting thinking back to the fact that Obi-Wan was giving the starship model to Luke because he wants him to sort of dream of the stars and starship travel. And Leia is trying to get out of sort of an official family sort of political meeting. And she's sitting in a tree watching the starships. She can name them. She can recognize them as they're flying in and out of the spaceport. She is the one that's looking to the stars at a young age and thinking of the wider galaxy. She's involved in politics. You know, she's, she's seeing people from other galaxies and Luke is isolated. You know, he's like, you know, we're the farthest from the center of the galaxy. And I thought that that was really interesting sort of of um, you know two sides she's dreaming of starship travel and and the wider galaxy and Luke is he's kind of he'd get him sort of like maybe pretend pod racing and stuff like that but that's a Tatooine activity that you don't need yeah. to leave the planet to pod race and stuff like that so I thought that was really interesting that she's got a broader wide view goals and aspirations even if she's you know trying to dodge out of a few meetings and, and she's sort of you and know they also, they also very clearly indicate that she's adept at reading people even at a very young age and whether or not that's some degree of force sensitivity, mm. sensitivity or just an innate ability, it doesn't really matter. It does portray that she is an ideal diplomat and, and leader ultimately. Yeah, I thought that that was really, that was a really tricky scene for her to do, to sort of be talking back to somebody. But she, she does it with sort of like she's reading him. And as you say, we don't know if that's kind of well, a, a, a couple, forcibility. There's a couple of instances where specifically, there's the, her cousin, but then also later the way she interprets that Obi-Wan's hiding something. That's yes. in the later, later yeah. episode. So it does, it does stand out because it does recur. Yeah, I like that. I always like to think that, you know, that both Luke and Leia have some element of the Force with them at a young age. You know, it doesn't just kind of spring on you when you turn 21 or something like that, that certainly in the time of the Jedi, they can recognize that, that sort of Force talent and in infants, you know, and certainly if you go back all the way to sort of the Phantom Menace, they can literally, you know, test for midichlorians and go, yep, you're going to be Force sensitive and things like that. So I like to think even if it's not, 
not obviously trying to portray that she has some level of force sensitivity. I like to believe that there is a little bit in there that, you know, she is utilizing it to, to, to fit her circumstances. She, you know, she is, she's aware of the Jedi. She is aware that you can make things float. And I thought that that was like a fun reference to, to Ray's line with Luke, you know, floating rocks, um, and stuff like that. But yeah, she is aware of the Jedi and what they can do, even though she wouldn't have been sort of around you know, with them. Um, yeah, some of those stories may have come from Bale because he had mm, a tight relationship with Obi-Wan and Yoda and, and other Jedi. And, and just maybe maybe not overtly. She is, you know, obviously she is aware that she is adopted and, and other people are aware of that fact as well. Mm-hmm. But obviously she has a different name in this, you know, she, like she's aware that she's adopted into the Organa family, that she wasn't born into it, but they don't, she doesn't seem to have an awareness of her backstory. And it does make me wonder, as just one final little point, whether we will get any kind of, we know that there is that line at the end of Return of the Jedi that that Leia seems to have some subtle mm. memory of her mother. Of and I don't mother. know yeah. if that is ever going to crop up in the story, whether Bale and or Obi-Wan at some point is going to basically reveal to her, at least who her mother is. You don't necessarily, like, is that treating too much to, oh, yeah, Anakin slash Darth Vader is your father. Clearly, she doesn't mm. know that. But they might have, she might find out a little bit more about her mother specifically, like a photo or just, or maybe she will sort of uh, glean a little bit of uh, an image or a sensation from Obi-Wan if he's, like, being sort of remembering Padme and she gets a sense of who Padme, of who her mother was, which would possibly account for the fact that she knew that her mother was beautiful but sad yeah, yeah. because that would be how Obi-Wan would remember her yeah so on that note we're just jumping around a little bit here so you're just speaking there about a connection between what we're seeing here and what crops up in the original trilogy the other thing that kind of stood out with to me is that in the original trilogy when Luke first rescues her from the detention center she refers to Obi-Wan Kenobi as Ben Kenobi that's how she knows him so it's kind of fun that Mm. that's how she's introduced to him very shortly so all of that's building up to the crux of the episode which is the kidnap of Princess Leia by Vic Nocru's gang Vic Nocru is played by Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers who's a very fun villain in this episode and it turns out that that gang is actually being hired by Reva, the third sister, to lure out Kenobi because she has become aware of the connection between Kenobi and Bail Organa and presumes, uh, speculates that, that, that they'll actually contact each other um, for assistance. And that is, in fact, what transpires. Bail Organa makes a couple of attempts to contact Obi-Wan Kenobi and, and ask for his help and because he trusts him, he believes he's capable, um, but also trusts him with the secret that Princess Leia is, in fact, a... Uh, significant potential force user daughter of Anakin Skywalker and so forth and that's those are secrets that they don't necessarily want out at this point yeah I thought it was it was sort of gut-wrenching you can imagine how it would feel not just to have your child in danger but knowing just how important Leia could Leia could be and ultimately even though they may not know it fully at this point, we know how hugely important Leia is for the whole galaxy towards, you know, the end of the Skywalker saga. So you can sort of feel this urgency and how how desperately they are pleading for Obi-Wan to help because they know that they have to play this really quiet. They can't just go tell the police because, you know, then as we found out earlier, that they have never taken her off world because they are trying to keep her sort of secret and hidden so that no one would recognize her or that somebody 
wouldn't sense who she is. She's obviously never come in contact with inquisitors um, or any kind of dark side aligned force users who may sense her importance or who she is, you know, that they're like, oh my gosh, you're Anakin's daughter. Oh, that's a bit of a, you know, big reveal. But I also thought it was fun to, even though Obi-Wan has buried his lightsabers and tried to get everything of sort of his past hidden and forgotten, he still has his little sort of Jedi mm-hmm. hollow communicator. That was a fun nod to some of the prep props that we've seen in both the prequels and in the animated series. So that was sort of fun. But also it kind of belies the fact that he hasn't completely That's cut exactly himself off say, yeah. from the rest of the galaxy, that he has still got this one tiny little tether that very, very few people would know to how to contact to, yeah. him. But yeah, it was kind of sad the fact that he's just like, no, I'm, I'm, it was like, he was like, he was saying, I'm worthless, I'm hopeless, I can't help anybody. It was just, yeah, yeah, he was just absolutely at his lowest of the low point. And after all that pleading and after the death of Nari, he does relent. And so the episode wraps up with him, as you say, retrieving his lightsabers and making his way off Tatooine to Dayu. I almost wonder whether he thinks that perhaps the Inquisitors are closing in. So maybe if he can do one good deed before he dies. Yeah, so that, you know, like yeah, one little moment, you know, and he's just like, yeah. yeah. And he's like, okay, so a Jedi that was just here yesterday is, 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 was killed by the Inquisitors. They're going to get me. So maybe if I do this one thing, maybe I can live on in the force and kind of earn my place. And also, the moment where Bail Lagana's like one last fight for her, you know that they are referencing Padme, and that just sort of got me because you know that that Bail Lagana and Obi Wan were like the only two people there. Yoda's not specifically seen in the scene where Padme gives birth and and ultimately dies. Then that the only two people there when she died were were Obi Wan and Bail. So it was so emotional having those two people remembering her and sort of making reference to Padme, which does happen again later. I thought it was a powerful connection as well, yeah. But yeah, it's because obviously there's a lot about the Skywalker saga that focuses on Vader and Anakin and how it's Anakin's kids, you know, because he is the Force-sensitive one. But, you know, Anakin went to the dark side for Padme. She is an essential and very important component to the story. You know, she, these are her kids living on as well. So I thought that that was, that was the really neat sort of moment to have that, that whether that is a big component of why Kenobi well, changes his mind or yeah. just doesn't have an element to it. I thought it was powerful that they included well, that. That's important because later on, Obi-Wan Kenobi does specifically say that Princess Leia reminds him of someone else. He doesn't say it's specifically her mother. Um, but, of course, we know that. He just didn't want her to know that at that point in time. And that is just reminding us that a lot of who they are comes from Padme as well. They aren't just Anakin's, Anakin's kids as well. It's, it's more significant than that, that they are the, the combined progeny of both Anakin and Padme. And that's doubly significant. Especially since Leia is the one that follows in her mother's footsteps in terms of sort of the both the rebellion and sort of the world of politics that she is yep. even even though she does have the force as her father does she is the one that kind of goes into because we a see significant an, impact on the galaxy just in a different way yeah. yes yes that that the, they're not sort of more important than the other Leia you know they wouldn't have def, you know sort of won out in the end at the end of sort of episode nine without important contributions from Leia, as well as obviously, you know, Jedi as well. 
And of course, we get that other little moment that ties into episode three when Obi-Wan goes to dig up his lightsaber because, of course, he's decided to go do this quest. And I, of course, I don't know why it took me by surprise, but seeing Anakin's lightsaber sort of buried alongside Obi-Wan, that he buried his past as his sort of tangible connection to Anakin with that Even sort of important component. Yes. Luke's- Later, Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader's lightsaber, Anakin Skywalker's lightsaber, seeing them lying together kind mm. of did hit home that he couldn't let go of that aspect of yes. Anakin and Anakin's death. Yeah, he the, couldn't just discard it. The, we know that he has it down the line because yes. of what happens in A New Hope, but this yeah. just really, really reminded us of that aspect. Yeah, of it. it sort of felt like that was the last element of Anakin as a Jedi, Anakin as his sort of his Padawan yeah. that became, you know, a knight, a brother alongside him, you know, that that he's he's never really completely sort of given up, even though, you know, 99% of him has. He still has that tiny little... And yeah, maybe at this point he has already decided that, okay, when Luke starts showing Force talent, I'm going to give him a gift. But mm. it was it was a neat, fun little moment. And of course, it felt reminiscent of the final scene in Episode Nine where Rey buries yeah, sure. the two sabers yeah. together as well. All right, so Obi-Wan Kenobi makes his way to planet Dai, and at the start of episode two, he disembarks and has a number of different encounters with random or semi-random people on the planet Dai. The first encounter is just with a sort of a someone who informs him, lets him know that uh, signals are being blocked in and out of the planet, that his tracking device that led him to Dai is not going to be useful effect or effective in terms of tracking down Princess Leia is going to have to rely on other methods from this point forward. So that's just a necessary bit of plot development. The next person he encounters is a drug dealer of sorts, and she has a bit of a conversation with him and ultimately gives him some drugs. They show up as being useful later down the line. But the really striking thing here is that the young girl that he is talking to is portrayed by Esther Rose McGregor, who is, of course, Ewan McGregor's real-life daughter. So that's kind of intentionally subtly comical, I guess you could say, for want of a better word, that she has lines along the lines of, uh, I was someone's daughter once, and they have exchanges of that type. She also calls him old man yeah. at one point. And I was like, how many times did they like crack a smile on set after wrapping one of those takes? And then the third person he encounters is a boy, obviously, who is an accomplice of a con man who we're about to meet, who is portraying a, a Jedi, who is a fake Jedi, and is you know making money out of pretending to be a Jedi and being able to help Jedi through a number of a series of tricks. That Jedi, or fake Jedi, is going by the name of Haja Estri, is played by Kamal Nanjiani. He does a fantastic job of just a little bit of, you know, a comedic portrayal of this con man who doesn't quite know how Jedi, Jedi work or operate or, you know, the, the presence that they have. He does a bit of a faux version of that, which is slightly comical, but it works in this context. Yeah, it feels like the sort of the the fortune tellers that yeah. are sort of portrayed in movies. Like, I'll help Slightly you. Slightly over exaggerated. Yeah, you yeah. pay me some credits and I'll I'll establish. No, no, it, you don't you know, need to. Okay, you yeah, do. yeah. <laughs> but I, I he, that's, that's sort of like a, the charisma that that a good sort of con artist has. You know, where they they're very believable because they put on the show, and I think he played that well. You're not sure if you want to hate him or he's kind of like fun and sort of good natured on the inside. You don't really know when you meet him. He's gentle enough at this point that uh, you can't you can't outright hate him side note the mother and son that he's helping that 
Hajar Estuary is helping. Now it's not quite clear how this is going to pan out. It's probably just a little bit of a tiny Easter egg for fans of the old expanded universe. The sun is described as having force abilities and that's why they're trying to get him off the planet and the mother says they're taking him to Karelia specifically. That child is named in the credits with the first name of Corrin and of course that that is in reference to Corrin Horn, who was a Karelian rogue squadron pilot who later became a new, new later became a new Republic hero and then ultimately a Jedi Master of the New Jedi Order in the old expanded universe. Not strongly implying that that's necessarily the same person, uh, but some but it's an Easter egg for those that are familiar with the old expanded universe. Corrin is a common name, but force-powered child with the name of Corrin, the right age that makes their way to Karelia, is an interesting Easter egg. Yeah, and and the writer for the I Jedi book mm-hmm. uh, has seen it as well, so it, it'll be interesting to see if if maybe you know some I'll some pro- official source can, can like confirm or just go no, that was just a nod to an old expanded universe reference, yeah, just just something for the fans to go hey. It's yeah, probably just an Easter egg, but it's really interesting that so many variables line up there. It's clearly intentional at this point in time, both Corrin as seen on Dayu in this episode, and Corrin Horn have different entries in the database on Wikipedia, so it's just fun speculation and conversation and trivia. So, yeah, Obi-Wan Kenobi is drawn towards uh, Haja Estuary by Haja's assistant, and Obi-Wan Kenobi obviously knows what's going on, but can see that uh, Haja may be able to help him because he knows the underworld of this planet, of this city. Yeah, he, he needs he needs a helper, you know, a friend and this person. He's got he's at least got some leverage here. He mm. knows that he's a fraud, that yeah. he's not a real Jedi. Yeah, so it's like I know something about you. Yeah. You know, I, I've got a secret on you, I could expose you or something like that. So help me and we'll both, you know, walk away unscathed from this, you know. Yeah. So it's kind of fun. And he's just like, Yep, yep, I'll help you just like straight away. And and we get a little bit of voiceover going, Here's the place you want to go if yeah. you want to find her and so him on his way. Yep, so it's a drug manufacturing lab that he's sent to. He destroys some of the drugs in an explosion as a diversion so that he can get into the back rooms where he believes Leia is being hidden. He encounters a couple of the local local thugs in the, in the corridors, a little bit of a scuffle there. Where he believes Leia to be held is not, in fact, where she has been held. It is a, it is a trap at that point in time. I thought it was interesting that they they make a point that he certainly when he first threatens Haja he doesn't doesn't use the force mm-hmm. he pulls out a blaster so we know he has a blaster we didn't see him sort of really pull out or use a weapon at all in the first episode but he has somehow procured this we don't know if he bought it when he was making his way off Tatooine or something yeah, storage, yeah something he's he just had on just as a backup and certainly we see him actually using his fists fighting the thugs in the hallway he's still not using the force he looks as we say bit. a little bit out of practice a bit he, he sort of takes a few punches in the face you know certainly not the not the Jedi master that, that's gone through years of war and fighting. No, he seems fighting a little bit rusty. But adept. He was out yeah. two to one, but his fighting was adept, but it wasn't force enhanced yeah. in any yeah. way. He's, he's still, he's either just in, he's just so used to not using the force, it doesn't come instinctively straight away. So it was kind of interesting to say that even when he's sort of caught out, he doesn't instinctively go to use the force to defend himself straight away. And he's, we know he has his lightsaber with him, but he doesn't pull it yeah. out. He's not using deadly force he just kind of like you know knocks him to the ground so Vect Nokru's gang was expecting Obi-Wan to turn up and that is why it wasn't in fact Leia that was being held in the in, in the room that she was supposedly being held in in fact that is the entire plan all the way along Leia was was simply bait 
to draw Obi-Wan Kenobi into a position where the Inquisitors or at least Reva could get hold of him. So it looks a little bit tense. It looks like Obi-Wan Kenobi has been caught by Vect Nocru's gang. He is outnumbered three to one in this instance, but this is where the spice that he acquired earlier on comes into play. He throws it on the ground, the canister explodes, fills the room. He still has his gas mask that he had as part of his, his disguise to get into the laboratory and manages to make his way out whilst everyone else in the room falls under the sort of hallucinogenic influence of, of the drug cloud that's filled the room. Yeah, we find out that, that yeah, that that was the plan to lure Obi-Wan to sort of rescue Leia all along. And the the gang seem to they're completely aware of, of that it is Obi-Wan. They sort of pull his lightsaber away from him and yeah. that. So again, we're reminded that he does have it and he hasn't used it, which is kind of important for the sort of ensuing sort of chase that happens. So Obi-Wan Kenobi does manage to find Princess Leia and after a little bit of convincing it starts to take her out. But in parallel with that, Reva turns up, finds the, the gang sort of unconscious or under the influence of drugs, becomes aware that Obi-Wan Kenobi was there but has escaped and because of that she sends a signal out to everybody, all the bounty hunters of the, in the local area that there is a bounty on Obi-Wan Kenobi and that he is in the region. That sets off everybody's alarm bells and now everybody is after Obi-Wan and Princess Leia on the streets. I thought it was cute that when he finds Leia's cell, she she tries to fight back. <laughs> you know, she's kind of you know disassembled she some never things. Gives out. She's yeah, never, yeah, that she's she's really trying to do what she can. I did I did get a bit sad when when the mercenaries broke Lola. Mm. I was like, oh no, because <laughs> certainly with the merchandising that we saw revealed at Celebration, they're going to lean into being the new cute character like bb8 or something like that so i'm i'm hopeful you know she's not completely smashed Alea does have her her components her pieces and, and feels, she says she's strong she'll be okay yeah that you that, that she'll fix her because in those moments where we see Leia sort of talking to her and sort of playing with her back on alderaan it's it's certainly a droid with very cute personality it's kind of has a, a cute ladybug-esque sort of design to it i'm hoping that that Leia will have the opportunity to fix her and have her back up and running soon Perhaps she will be important to the plot as, as a, you know, a droid helper as they're trying to sort of get back home. So there's a pretty rapid sequence of plot points that uh, happen here in transition to the next phase of the story. So Obi-Wan and Leia are escaping. At one point they encounter a bounty hunter and Obi-Wan Kenobi renders him unconscious. The communicator that that bounty hunter has starts broadcasting a hologram of Obi-Wan Kenobi and Princess Leia becomes suspicious about what's actually going on. She uh, becomes suspicious that he is wanted and he is the reason that they are being chased, not her. And then she starts to understand that she has been bait in this whole bigger, bigger picture. So she, a little bit of distrust is starting to develop and she tries to run off. And then, of course, because we know that all the bounty hunters are being set on their trail, the the sort of the street urchin and and the fake Jedi uh, see the sort of the broadcast with the bounty on Obi Wan, recognize him that they that he was just there and that they helped him. And at this point, you don't know if they're going to go chase Cash after Obi Wan yeah. to grab the bounty or to warn them, but they sort of run off and is and again sort of playing because they're like, oh my gosh, did you like sort of the bounty that that would be on him? That's a lot of credits, and they sort of go off and at this point we don't know if it's to chase or to help them but yeah now we've got a lot of different creatures and some droids sort of in the mix sort of as all the bounty hunters are you know being alerted yeah, to that, that cool bounty hunter droid that looks like Forlom that we've been led to believe isn't actually Forlom that he's been referred to as one JAC one Jack but it's nice to see that style of droid anyway 
Mm. But anyway, Obi-Wan Kenobi is chasing after Princess Leia because she's a little bit scared and a little bit uh, not sure about what's actually going on. They go up onto the roofs of the buildings. There's lots of gunfire. The, the gunfire happens to draw the attention of Reva, who's looking out for it. She kind of got the impression that's what might be going down and how she might be able to spot where they are. But Princess Leia at this point is trying to run away from Obi-Wan, uh, who's also trying to dodge blaster fire. So he's got a lot on his hands at this point in time. And Princess Leia is still running away. She, in fact, falls and... Reluctantly, he reaches out with the Force to save her, absolutely necessary. Clearly, during the process of that, we see that it's a significant effort. He hasn't used the Force in quite some time. But fortunately, obviously, because we know how things ultimately pan out, he does save Leia and gently lowers her to the ground. This is another element where we see just how brave Leia is. She, they're on, up on high buildings and she's trying to make a sort of a jump across, but she's only 10 years old. She's not really going to be able to leap between buildings and grabs onto a wire strung between. And yep, fortunately, I'll, she bought gloves earlier on. Yeah. Yeah. When, when they're sort of trying to escape, Obi-Wan buys her some uh, sort of disguise clothes, including gloves. You can see that she, I like the little sort of moment where she's like trying to, she wants the fancy beaded one and he's like, no, no, the plain no, no, one. Oh, she said, she said, no, he says, you don't need gloves. She yeah. puts them on anyway, so, so I'll so take he, the gloves as well. <laughs> so he has to buy the gloves as well. But yeah, obviously that, that helps a bit here. And I thought it was interesting as they're kind of being fired at, again, Obi-Wan is not using the force. He's not using his lightsaber to, to, to sort of defend himself. He's still got his blaster and they're doing a lot of hiding. You know, at his height as, you know, General Kenobi in the Clone Wars, this would have been absolutely, you know, the easiest thing in the world to just, you know, defeat them and walk away with with Leia and it was it was kind of sad seeing how much it looked like he was straining to to catch a 10 year old child she can't weigh much but just the kind of the the exertion to to catch her as she falls and gently lower her yeah at all I think just to summon and use the force because there was a point earlier and I can't exactly remember exactly where it cropped up but he does look at his lightsaber and it's clear that he hasn't turned it on even since digging it up out Mm. of the sand we get the impression that he hasn't even turned turned it on at that point, let alone yeah. um, use it in any way. So Leia realizes that he is a Jedi. She's quite quite astounded and impressed. Obi-Wan Kenobi has made his way to the ground at that point. The remaining bounty hunter, one Jack, shows up and looks like he's got them at gunpoint. But the droid is shot and it turns out that Haja Estri has come to help them. He shoots the droid in the back and uh, has a bit of a conversation with, with Obi-Wan Kenobi letting him know that he's not going to get out of the planet, get off planet through the normal route. He's going to have to take a, a cargo transport. Kind of implies that he's got some other people off planet that can help him. And I'm, I'm going to be interested to find out who specifically that is and what form that takes. I thought it was nice that Haja turns out to be sort of a friend. We know that now that he might have been making money from his enterprise, but he, he is yeah. he is legitimately helping people escape this planet. And I almost almost got the impression that the reason he was impersonating Jedi is because he holds them in esteem, that he's yes. impressed by what they represent and that he yeah. maybe wants to be that on some level. Yeah, because obviously if you're sort of, you know, uh, you know, out trapped in sort of the underground of of these sorts of 
Star Wars planets and things like that. These people aspire to be to be more, you know, to be to be good people and things like that. And I thought it was fun. I also thought it was fun that they they kind of put him in what <laughs> felt like a little bit of sort of like it 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 made His me think that robes, yeah. yeah they kind of look like bathrobes like like you know when when kids and and even adults put on like bathrobes and sort of do them up and and because they have a passing resemblance to Jedi robes you know sort of especially if you do them in brown so I thought it was fun that they kind of took that sort of element of it kind of looks like Jedi robes but it's clearly kind of you know pretending and just that kind of nod costume wise I thought was fun and yeah he he kind of sends them off gives them a little sort of code cylinder that yep. will let them use this transport and get off world yeah, and gives yeah. them instructions on where to go for further help yeah and he goes one step further he says he will buy them time reaver because of the gunfight is honing in on their location at this point haja pretends to be the jedi she's seeking mm-hmm. yeah he's armed only with a with a blaster at this point and of course she can detect you know, his degree or lack of force sensitive sensitivity he says you are no jedi he still plays along as long as he possibly can. But she, through the Force, obviously detects that he does know something. Yes. And we see a little bit of a sort of a Kylo Ren moment, oh, using yeah. the Force to kind of get into his mind and take the information that she needs. Yes. And so she doesn't kill him. She see, he says, I'm not going to tell you anything. And yeah. she says, I don't need you to. Yeah, so she obviously gets the information that she's looking for, where Obi-Wan is heading, and she doesn't kill him. So I'm like, no, yeah, because he's 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 one of those ones where he maybe not be the 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 goodest of of you know helping people, but he's too sort of lovable and funny to sort of kill outright. We need a little bit of light here because we've seen some people get killed. So I thought that that was fun, you know, and he can continue to just be helping people escape. It was just sort of a little light in the darkness here yeah. um, to sort of add that sort of comedic moment. And so, who knows whether th- whether there's more stories to tell about him, but I thought he was a really fun character in just these two episodes, if that's all we get of him. Yeah, it was fun just seeing online afterwards. Once the episode had released, um, come on Gianni on social media was just saying how excited he was to be able to say that he is now in Star Wars uh, once that episode had aired, just as a side note. So Obi-Wan and Leia have a bit of a head start. They get to the cargo port uh, in advance of Reva, but Reva is catching up to them. Obi-Wan's hiding behind some crates at the point where Reva enters the, the hangar, uh, the storage, storage bay, and there's a bit of a monologue situation here where Reva's trying to goad him out. And this is where the real gut punch for Obi-Wan Kenobi comes into play. She obviously knows his whole story and his relationship to Anakin Skywalker. And I think she may even know that he's not aware that Anakin Skywalker is in fact alive. And it becomes clear to us, to the viewers, that Obi-Wan Kenobi's gone this whole 10 years thinking that Anakin died on Mustafa. In the previous episode, in the first episode, when he is talking with Owen Lars on Tatooine, Owen says something like, Anakin's dead. And like, just like in sort of a he's gone get over it mm. type moment and it doesn't you know it's it it's and it, Obi-Wan looks clear. like he knows like yes yes I failed yes I, I am awful but um, even and back then of, it's not clear if he's been purely literal just from a certain point yeah, of view yeah yeah you're not sure whether sort of the person who was Anakin is dead and now Lord Vader exists he does it's, it's now clear that yes he did actually believe that Anakin died where he left him on Mustafar And at the moment, at the point, so after that, at the point in time where Reva is about to 
expose Obi-Wan, capture him, whatever. The <laughs> Grand Inquisitor once again shows up and uh, says to her, uh, no, we'll, effectively says to her, well, we need to do this together, otherwise you're just going to fail him and he will escape. Yeah, earlier on when when the Grand Inquisitor finds out that Reva's got this kind of secret plot to go and find Kenobi, the other, the, the fifth brother kind of basically, you know, exposes her sort of plot and was like, yeah, she wants, she thinks she's going to basically climb the ranks if she can capture Kenobi because she knows how important Kenobi is to, to Vader and I guess Palpatine as well. And we get a sense, there's a sort of a confrontation. He's like, you know, you're the lowest of us. He mm. really wants to put her in her place that she's basically, She's like, not sure you know, if we're going to get more to that story if that's yeah. that level. They're going to just give us, and we're not we just it's basically understand it at that level. But sort of implies that she came from from the gutter and she's climbed up a little bit, but she's still the lowest of the inquisitors and doesn't regard her as much and thinks that her sort of aspirations for climbing that ladder are just, you know, this is not on. We're not going to have this. I'm going to put a stop to this. So when he comes in, is like, okay, you're going to fail at this. So let me step in and do this because you're just going to let him escape again and then you can see that she's just finally she just snaps and stabs the grand inquisitor with her lightsaber but but is he dead or is he not dead because as we know from star wars rebels the grand inquisitor is there and that is set afterwards so clearly he is wounded but obviously this is not the last we're going to see of him the lightsaber through the guts not necessarily and i I kind of like the fact that she that she thought she could take him out but this is going to make him oh so angry um and that's going to have like a real interesting sort of tension and dynamic among the inquisitors i mean as we as we were talking earlier you know, dark side users seem to have this, if you get in my way, I'm just going to kill you and keep going moment. And so I thought that that was fun to kind of really set the tone of how sort of uh, not shy about using deadly force if it serves their needs and especially if it gets well, them higher up she, the ladder. She might have been also at the breaking point because Grand Inquisitor's been on her case for a little yes. bit of a while. This whole, <laughs> yeah, this whole. And, and how close she was. She's literally in the room with Kenobi. Yeah, I, I, I get the sense that there is possibly more to why she is specifically obsessed with Kenobi. Yeah, get that feel too. Um, yeah. That there is something maybe she is, because we know from... She's got some sort of vendetta, something that's been done to but her. But we know that, as I said, the Inquisitors, uh, I think somebody references the fact that they now hunt their own kind yep. that the inquisitors are former jedi yep. are they are they the padawans that we saw escaping the temple are they bitter that that obi-wan trained the guy that you know massacred all their brothers and sisters at the jedi temple are they just mad at the general jedi in general have they just sort of been corrupted well, yeah, yeah, there's, there's to sort of hate them of the inquisitors that, that, <laughs> that needs to be told somewhere along the line yeah i mean is it was she t- was she sort of one of the temple ones, and that's why she has a real hatred of Jedi more so than the others. You know, maybe the others were just sort of you know. Yeah, the, the but story they've got slightly different the story grand, points to where Quisitor they are was now. A temple guard, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. So maybe not. So they you know, come from all sorts of all sorts yeah. of backgrounds. All right. So that interaction between Reva and the Grand Inquisitor, that little lightsaber interaction, uh, gives Obi Wan Kenobi and Princess Leia the time to escape and they they, 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 they launch sort of um they, they plug in their sort of coordinates into the automatic transport ship and it takes yeah. off and and then we get the sort of where obi-wan finally has the moment to just kind of take a breath realize um, the impact of what he's just learned yeah, yeah. and and 
whether he's sort of, I get a feeling he's maybe daring to reach out on the force to kind of see if it's true, you know, because yeah. we know that, that the dark side is full of lies and deception. So maybe he's like doing this tiny little reach out on the force, you know, Anakin, are, are you there type thing? And then we get this absolutely incredible shot of, Darth Vader, you know, previously Anakin right Skywalker, close, you know, right up close tank. in his sort of back to tank and his eyes are open and you can see the sort of the Sith eyes. We get this really ominous music that just, oh, it just, it just, it's so creepy as the camera sort of draws back and we get a broader view of sort of the, the very burnt body of yeah. Anakin in the back to tank. And, and you really... know that he is aware of Obi-Wan. It's like the Luke and Leia kind of reaching out at the force at the end of Empire Strikes Back that they feel that and so you know Obi-Wan knows Anakin is alive now Anakin knows Obi-Wan is alive and ooh was that a brilliant place to leave us yeah because that's technically the closing scene Mm. but from what I really felt the credits roll after that and Unlike the first episode, we actually see Hayden Christensen's name in the yes. credits of the second episode. Yes. For, you know, as a consequence of that two, three seconds of, well, probably five seconds of Darth Vader right at the end. And just seeing Hayden Christensen's name there is what really, as well as the visuals, um, him and home, that Darth Vader is back. I thought that was quite cool. Yeah, like, you know that they were going to give us something cool. The way that they just teased Vader in the trailer, you know, a little bit of the arm, the little bit of sort of the chest box, no shot of the of the iconic helmet or anything too sort of too overt. I like the fact that we weren't really sure how we were going to be introduced, well, reintroduced to Vader. And again, it felt like a nod back to the prequels because we saw how Anakin ended up in that physical state. We saw him being, you know, <laughs> you know, with his limbs off yeah, and, so and being burnt. But it's sort of, yeah, that this is, that this is 10 years and yeah. he's still having his back to tank treatments, you know, because that was a pretty horrific treatment, uh, pretty horrific injury uh and sort of condition that he was left in full body injury yeah 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 so you know he's he's gonna he's gonna have some things to uh to go through both physically and sort of emotionally and everything like that but oh i it's it's counting down the minutes till we get to watch the next episode this is gonna be cruel watching this in a one week cadence going forward because it felt good getting two episodes all at once we could get a good chunk through to be sure it means we also get through the season faster getting a third of it in one go and now the next four episodes are going to be spaced apart but uh, there's a lot to really go through and at least a week gives us time to sort of uh you know sort of focus on it a little bit rewatch it a couple of times just to see fun sort of easter eggs really dive into the sort of underlying emotions here because emotion is playing such a huge component to this show both for the viewers and the characters. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt. So that was a lot of fun just sort of recapping recapping episode one and episode two of Obi-Wan Kenobi and we will be tackling episode three of Obi-Wan Kenobi and our normal full podcast next week. But that's about it for today's installment. I guess we're done doing talking. Thanks for listening in. If you've got any thoughts on the topics we discussed today, we're definitely keen to hear them. Leave a comment on the YouTube page or our website page for this podcast. Definitely keen to hear what you thought of those episodes of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Stay tuned to our website, stmnz.co.nz, for Star Wars news for New Zealanders and another podcast episode next week and every Tuesday. Don't forget you can jump on over to either our Facebook group or the SWNZ message boards to discuss all the latest Star Wars news with other Kiwi fans. 
Kia ora, kia noho, haumaru. Thank you for listening and stay safe. Turo Hawaiki. May the force be with you.